is one of the most popular defense. You might call it exercise. You might call it minds. It might even be on your mind as one year rolls in to the next. As a matter of fact, there are a handful of people, a few people in my own life who have told me that I have a simpler approach. It revolves around me a hard time. Um, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, which I, but in that movie, the father suggests Windex. I think squats and lunges are the cure for everything. I actually thought that joke had died, um, but when I told her that this was pin lunges, cure the flu. They clean your dirty hair. Oh, you have a stuffy nose. Why don't you go do some squats and lunges? Um, now, I really am not that bad. Uh, and having experienced it for myself, I would anybody who is interested. That doesn't mean I'm going to be in your face about it, that I'm going to be a jerk, that I'm just offering up my unsolicited or unsolicited exercise advice. All is work. Even if you think I'm crazy for lunging down the sidewalk out on Allisonville Road. There's no sidewalk out there. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. But you might think I look crazy doing that. Um, people are turned off by it because it looks crazy. But but I've experienced that power. I'm willing to do it if that's the cost to the world at large. Just like the world of exercise is full of gimmicks, it's full of shallow dreams, shallow promises. But the power of Jesus compels us to be bold witnesses in a world of gimmicks and shallow dreams. So in a moment, we are going to turn our attention to the book of Acts. As a youth group, we've been working through the book of Acts for several months now. And I've been calling our study, What in the World? What in the World? As in, what in the world is God doing? Or, maybe more clearly, but not quite as catchy, what is God doing in the world? So throughout the book of Acts, but specifically in chapters 3 and 4 this morning, we are going to see together God's transforming power and the boldness it inspires in those who experience it. Before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for Sundays. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather um, as a body, as a people united um, under the head of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, to love one another, encourage one another, and to do that through praying for each other, praying with each other, um, singing songs that encourage us, that remind us of your word, that guide our hearts um, back to the word that Psalm 119 uh, speak so wonderfully and glowingly about. Thank you for the opportunity we have to um, take communion together and to hear a sermon this morning. Lord, I pray that um, you would make good on your promise like you always do, that your word does not go out and return empty-handed, that you always accomplish what you intend to accomplish um, by the speaking and preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that um, our hearts this morning will be turned and tuned to you that um, this message would be an encouragement, um, maybe uh, conviction, uh, that when we leave this place today, uh, we will be glorifying you more here in the world that you've made um, and being a source of light in a dark world, in a place that drastically and desperately needs hope. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the book of Acts is called Acts because it records Acts. You got that? It's historically been referred to as the Acts of the Apostles, uh, but it might be better understood as the Acts of Jesus Christ in heaven through the people of God on earth 
by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So it's the acts of Jesus Christ in heaven through the people of God on earth by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. But that is a mouthful and wouldn't look very good on a book binding. So Acts it is. Acts is the second part of a two-part history written by a physician named Luke, whose first work, uh, as you may have guessed, is the Gospel of Luke, which records a detailed account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And after a brief but important introduction to the book of Acts, we immediately jump into the first major scene, which is Jesus' ascension. He's going into heaven, which sets the stage for our question, what in the world? If Jesus is in heaven, what is happening on earth? So that sets the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. Then the second major scene comes, and it's the replacement of Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus. And this highlights, among other things, God's plan to work through his people on earth. We move into chapter 2, and we have our third scene, which is Pentecost. And at Pentecost, as you may know, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples, just as Christ promised. Next, we come to the story we will consider this morning in Acts 3 and 4. But right out of the gates, we see that although Christ is in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, his influence on earth has not decreased. His mission has not ended. In fact, it may have even just begun. And this was surely felt by the disciples in those earliest of days. The resurrection was fresh in their minds. The miracles of Christ were seen in a new light Because of the resurrection, the power displayed at Pentecost was a fireworks show of God's power working to fulfill his promises. In Acts 3, we're going to see Peter and John walking as bold witnesses because of their experience with Christ. The power of Jesus compels us to be bold witnesses in a world full of gimmicks and shallow dreams. So first things first, then, is if we're going to be bold, we need to know that Jesus is powerful. In the beginning of Acts 3, we will see that this is exactly the case. We can be bold because Jesus reigns in power. If you'll turn with me to Acts 3, starting in verse 1, I'm not going to have the, uh, the main text on the screen this morning, but when I reference some side things, it will be up there. So it will be helpful for you to pull out a Bible, pull out your phone. If you don't have a phone, uh, I'm not going to keep going. I, I don't, I, that doesn't make sense. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in one of the seats in front of you, underneath it, to take out and use that and Take it home if you'd like. But if you could, turn to Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says this. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Rise up, sorry, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. 
And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So how has Jesus demonstrated his power? It's pretty plain. He has demonstrated his power by healing a paralyzed man. That is the testimony of Peter and John. If you look at verse 16 with me, Acts 3.16, it says this. It says, in his name, that's Jesus, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter and John didn't want any of the credit for this healing. In verse 12, they make this very point. It is not by their power. It is not by their piety, their special religious religiousness or their holiness that the beggar has been healed. It is by the power of Jesus Christ. And this is similar to a story found in the Gospel of Luke. Unsurprisingly, again, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. In Luke 5, a paralyzed man is lowered through a roof by his friends so that Jesus might help him. And Jesus, rather than immediately healing the man, he tells him, your sins are forgiven. And this was quite the scandal. So Jesus asked the crowd, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Well, it's much, much easier to say your sins are forgiven you because it's horribly obvious when you tell a paralyzed man to walk, whether or not your words have any power. But in order to show just how much power he has, Jesus did both. He pardoned sins and he strengthened the man's legs. Jesus Christ is powerful. But it's not just that he's powerful because a powerful man in a prison or in a dungeon is not all that powerful. Jesus is in a position to use his power. He is the king. He reigns over everything. So our text this morning, Acts 3 and 4, begins and ends with confidence in the power of Jesus. If you flip over with me to Acts 4, starting in verse 23, and then going through verse 28, it says this. It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See, Jesus is king. He reigns over all of creation. He is sovereign. He does as he pleases. As creator of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them, there's nothing that happens without him knowing. Which is why, as we see in these verses, that no matter what wicked schemes are concocted, that no matter what evil is committed, no matter what hurt you must endure, the plans of God are carried out. This is most clearly illustrated in no place less than the cross, the very cross of Christ, which is what Acts 4, 23 through 28 is talking about. All the evil plotting, the rage, and the gathering of strength by the opposition was not enough to thwart God's plans. God intended for Christ to die. He didn't fulfill his plans in spite of the wickedness. 
but in it and through it. See, the plotting and the rage were not a headwind that God had to fight against and ultimately overcame. That would, no doubt, be proof of a very powerful God. But instead, the plotting and the rage they were known by God beforehand. And his power is so great, his rule is so certain that he did not merely overcome evil. He allowed it and then used it to his advantage. So we can be bold because Jesus reigns in power. As Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, it's uh, Matthew 10, 28. It says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That can be a frightening verse. But if you are in Christ, then your soul and your body are secure. Your soul is secure and your body will be raised with Christ at the last day by God. So what do you have to fear? Why should you not be bold? As it's written in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or as Psalm 27 says, if God is the stronghold of your life, if God is the fortress of your life, whom shall you fear? So be bold because Jesus, the savior of your soul, reigns in power. The second thing is be bold because the world needs you to be bold. Be bold because the world is full of gimmicks and shallow dreams. See, people long for things that are shallow. And what I mean by shallow dreams or shallow things is they're not deep. They're not deep enough to satisfy the deep longings that we all have. For for example, in our story this morning, the paralyzed man hoped for money, silver and gold. Silver and gold aren't bad. They would have bought him food. They would have bought him clothes. They probably would have helped him have a place to stay. But they aren't deep. The satisfaction of silver and gold can only go so far. They couldn't strengthen his legs and restore his life to him. See, he dreamed of silver and gold, of money, when a full and restored life was available to him. Look with me at another example of these shallow dreams, uh, starting in verse 11, Acts 3, verse 11. It says this, while he clung to Peter and John, that is the, the healed beggar, All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's just a part of the temple. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you have delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. If you jump down to verse 26 it says this. God having raised up his servant. Sent him to you first. To bless you by turning every one of you. From your wickedness. The crowd. Is drawn to Peter and John. After they've performed a miracle. The same thing and probably the same crowds were drawn to Christ for the same reasons. The crowds were hoping for a strong man to rise up. They were looking for a hero. 
And a special touch of God-like power is a good place to start if you want to be a hero. Performing miracles, saying smart and wise things, it's a good place to start. But Jesus ended up not meeting their expectations. So they denied him and they killed him. See, they hadn't considered that God himself would come down, not to deal with the Romans, but to conquer sin. They were ignorant, as Peter goes on to say in verse 17. See, they wanted fixed politics, not realizing that fixed hearts were available to them. See, they were only dreaming of the day that they would be free from Rome rather than hoping to be free from sin. Our last example from the story this morning is in Acts 4, verses 1 through 3. So if you go ahead and look at that with me. It says, as they were speaking to the people, that's Peter and John, as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, the the shallow dream here, the the low thing that they are committed to, that they're working towards for these Jewish leaders was prosperity and well-being in this life only. Why do I know that? How can we know that? It's because the leaders are annoyed by Peter and John proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. It is not a resurrection from the dead, this one single resurrection, but is the resurrection from the dead. It is a, an idea, a belief held within Jewish teaching and then adopted by the early Christians that one day God will raise the dead to life, marking the end of time, and God will finally then rule and restore the earth. And so what they're saying is that Christ's resurrection ushered in a new era in history. But the Sadducees, they don't want that. They deny the doctrine of the resurrection because they deny the possibility of any resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then we only have this life. So in order to preserve their their privileged position within Jewish life, the Sadducees and the priests, they sought to shut up these Jesus followers rather than let them spread their message. And what was their message? And by extension, our message In a world of gimmicks, in a world of shallow dreams, what is the hope that we offer? Or if you look in Acts 4.4, what is the word that many can hear and believe? Let's pick back up in verse 5. It says, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel by the the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have this sure hope that there is salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. 
that his death and resurrection have secured forgiveness of sins for those who repent of their sins and believe in him. And salvation is not something we have to wait to experience. It can be experienced now. It's not just for your soul when you die. It's for your life here and now. The paralyzed man was not told to wait that his healing and salvation would come. But in order to demonstrate that our salvation is even now a present salvation, we see Christ performing miracles that make a difference now. It's not just for our souls after death. It's for all of life. Salvation changes how we relate to God in his world now as children with an inheritance instead of enemies. See, we are the beneficiaries of God's grace and his wonderful plans. But how can we be sure this isn't a gimmick? How can we be sure that this isn't just going to blow up in our faces, that we aren't being duped? See, the disciples faced opposition. And it would have been easy for them to give up, to shrink back and hide. They wouldn't have to outright deny Christ, but they could have chosen to no longer speak of him in public and and avoid any more awkward or downright dangerous confrontations. But that's not what they did. They persisted in boldness, openly and confidently proclaiming the name of Jesus, even when it cost them, especially when it cost them. And what happened? Let's look at verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, They had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, excuse me, what is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So what happened? What happened is that the leaders were confounded because, the, because Peter and John's acts were undeniably good. The priests and Sadducees could deny the words of the apostles, but they couldn't deny their works. This is what it means when 1 Corinthians 4.20 says that the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. See, our hope is not a gimmick because we've seen the power. So be on guard for these shallow dreams that will get you off track. Make sure that your hope is rooted in the deep wells of Christ's work on your behalf. And bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear the fruit of the gospel in your life. Because the world, they might reject your message. 
but they will not be able to deny the fruit it bears. And people need to experience the truth, even if they don't want to hear it, so that they might come to believe and know the truth. So be bold, because the world is full of gimmicks. It's full of shallow dreams. last thing this morning is be bold, because God is your helper. We've already read Acts 4, 23 through 28, and, and we used it to discuss God's rule, his power, his control. Uh, let's go ahead and jump to Acts 4, 29, uh, 30, and 31. I say this, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So how does God answer the prayers of the disciples? How does God help? By sending the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 31, the disciples continue to speak the word of God boldly as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the fall... A news story broke that a man had run a marathon in under two hours. Uh, One hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds to be exact. And while the average non-running enthusiast like myself, and, and frankly, the running enthusiast alike, were probably all dumbfounded and amazed by this feat, the time will not be recognized as a world record. Because the runner, a Kenyan a uh, man named Eliad Kipchoge had set up the whole thing to make it as optimal as possible. So he picked the most advantageous location. It was not too hot, it was not too cold, and it was not too hilly. Nike developed the most efficient running shoe ever made. He had a team of pacemakers running in front of him, rotating, rotating in and out in a wind-blocking formation along with a car in front of him projecting laser beams onto the ground to help them keep pace. He had a biker with a drink ready to go as needed alongside him. Even with all that, I could never do that. There's a reason that only one person has ever did that. But it's been referred to what he did as being as close as you can get to a mobile marathon spa treatment If going to a spa were paired with the worst discomfort of your life. As Christians, we are called into a race. And it's much more like a marathon than a sprint. It can be exhilarating at times and downright uncomfortable at others. But we are not running the race on our own. We have all the help in the world afforded to us. We have a mobile marathon spa to help us through even the worst discomforts of our lives. So what is it that the Holy Spirit does that's so helpful? Well, for one, he fills us, as we see in verse 31. The very presence of God dwells within you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? But God doesn't only dwell within us as if that's not enough. God also equips and empowers us to speak the word of God. Again, look at verse 31. What was the result of the disciples being filled by the Holy Spirit? It wasn't boldness for boldness sake. 
they boldly spoke the word of God. In John 15, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says this. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit fills believers, they too will bear witness about Jesus. And with the Holy Spirit's help, you don't need to be prepared with an answer for every question or a comeback for every disagreement. In Luke 12, Jesus says this. He says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In Acts 3 and 4, we see that promise coming to life. Throughout the book of Acts, we see that promise coming to life. And if we are willing in our lives, we will see that promise coming to life. So the Holy Spirit fills us, equips us, and empowers us to speak the word of God. And it also bears fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is the, the very well-known, well-worn passage about the fruit of the Spirit. And just like that healed beggar in Acts 3 was the undeniable evidence as he stood next to Peter and John in the temple. He was the undeniable fruit of what Peter and John had preached. So too, the Spirit empowers us to bear that undeniable fruit. The world may hate your Christ and love its sin, but who can deny love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, the Holy Spirit will fill you and equip you and empower you, not only to speak the word of God, but to live it out. And those around you are meant to see the way that the fruit of your life is rooted in Christ. So open your mouth and trust the Holy Spirit to work. Focus on Jesus and not your own reputation and watch what God does in and through you. It is the joy and privilege and the, the passion of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Christ. And he will do it through you as you exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control to those around you. You only need to open your mouth and trust him. And as the book of Acts continues, the apostles and the church continue to find themselves in difficult situations. In Acts chapter 5, there is attempted deception among the ranks of the church, which end in some startling and untimely deaths. In chapter 6, there is discontentment across ethnic lines. In chapter 7, Stephen is murdered and becomes the first person killed for his faith in Christ. In chapter 8, we are introduced to Saul doing his best to destroy the church. On and on it goes. And on and on it continues to this day. We are only here today, Prairie View Christian Church, because no opposition has been able to extinguish the flame of Christ. We are here today because the torch of Christianity has been boldly passed down through the ages by men and women who believe in a powerful God, who know a powerful God. And while there is some disagreement about the nature of the church today and the nature of the church way back when, we can be absolutely sure of this. God is still God. And sin is still sin. No matter how we dress it up, no matter the flowery language that we may use, sin is still sin. 
and it is destructive. It is opposed to God who is himself life. And sin being opposed to God is itself opposed to life. Every person that you see needs freedom from the world's gimmicks and shallow dreams. Everybody needs to be freed from sin, which leads to death. So you must be bold. Be bold because Jesus is mighty. And be bold because sin must be opposed. And last of all, be bold because God himself is with you to help you succeed as you offer your life to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the gift of your spirit, for uh, the, the mighty works, the wonderful works that you have done in history, that our faith isn't just based on a on thinking the right things, God, that we've put it together in our heads uh, the way you might put together a math equation, um, but that you've really shown up in real history, in real time, in real space, and done real things that we can point back to and that we can uh, build our faith upon. Um, God, that we, there's real power that's been displayed. Um, help us to be bold uh, with, with your word. Help us to be bold with our lives. Uh, at the start of this new year. Um, Lord, and I pray that, uh, again, God, that your promise would be true, that your word does not go out and return void. It always accomplishes what you intend to perp- or intend for it. Um, thank you for your goodness, for your kindness, and for your great power that equips us uh, to be bold um, and picks us up when we fail. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.